Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Andrew Quintman, Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Yale University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Textual Studies. He is here to speak to us about his book, The Yogin and the Madman, reading the biographical corpus of Tibet's great Saint Milarepa, which was published with Columbia University Press. Congratulations and thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me here, Christian. It's a pleasure to be talking to you about the book. Yeah, it really is a wonderful book, well-deserving of the award. Many listeners might be familiar with Milarepa, but I'm, I'm sure many are not. Do you think you can begin perhaps with a, a sketch of the yogin, Milarepa? Talk about perhaps some of the early types of accounts that we find in the literature about him. Sure. Well, we don't know, to, to start with, we don't know a whole lot about uh, Milarepa as a historical figure. We don't have good primary historical sources to tell us who he, he was in a historical sense, but we do have a lot of literature about him, so we know who he is in the sense of story more than we do in the sense of history. Um, Milarepa uh, is in many ways the paradigmatic uh, mendicant, a wandering yogin, a kind of solitary hermit figure. Uh, he was also famous for being uh, a poet, great poet. Uh, he lived in the 11th century uh, and uh, was born and lived much of his life uh, wandering along the Himalayan borderlands uh, between southern Tibet and northern Nepal. Uh, so the picture that we have of him is uh, someone who uh, devoted his life to uh, a contemplative solitude. Uh, he, um, uh, he avoided uh, inhabited locations. He avoided monasteries. He avoided the kind of institutionalized monastic life altogether in favor of a life of solitude and contemplation in the kind of, you know, uh, wilderness. Um, he also uh, gathered uh, groups of uh, disciples to whom he taught, specifically in the uh, medium of song, of kind of songs of enlightenment. Um, and the, the stories associated with Milarepa went on to uh, create the kind of paradigm for what a religious mendicant, what an ascetic should be like. So in many ways, uh, he was the model that uh, for centuries to come, uh, people tried to follow. So, so the early stories, earliest stories that we have about his life paint a very sketchy picture, uh, what I refer to in the book as a kind of skeletal picture. Um, they don't fill in many narrative details, but they tell us some of the places that uh, he went. Um, they tell us uh, some of the kinds of practices that he did. They tell us some of the disciples that he attained, but they don't tell us much more than that. Now, you, you've already set the stage here, but part of what you're doing in examining this developing literary corpus is you think of it as a physical corpse in the sense of a Buddhist relic. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how you use this metaphor, why it works within the Tibetan context, and, and how it helps you think about your materials? Well, in the most famous account of, uh, of Milarepa's life, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, momentarily, uh, the story begins with Milarepa's childhood. Uh, he's famous for uh, losing his patrimony. His mother encourages him to exact revenge upon his relatives. So uh, he carries out acts of black magic. He becomes a mass murderer. He kills dozens of people in his family and eventually repents um, those negative deeds. He studies with a traditional Buddhist teacher, and then he goes on to live his life of solitude. But the culmination of that narrative arc of his life 
occurs at the very end of his life, with his death. And in many ways, this is modeled after the life of the Buddha, where the kind of culminating point of the Buddha's life story is in his death. And that's the same uh, with the narratives of Milarepa. So, uh, in the most famous telling of Milarepa's life story, uh, he, uh, he dies, and, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, so, he returns numerous times, almost a dozen times, to, he continues to sort of teach from the beyond, you might say, uh, to his disciples to give parting words of advice. But when all of that is over, his disciples go to the cremation chamber uh, where they have uh, cremated the, the, the body of Milarepa expecting to find relics. And of course, relics are central to uh, almost all Buddhist traditions. So when the Buddha died, his relics were the source of, uh, of, um, of, kind of uh, disruption among the community where people were, groups, different groups were fighting over who had access to the relics. So uh, Milarepa's disciples looked inside the funerary chamber, waiting, expecting to find his physical relics as objects of devotion. And what they find is that these kind of celestial goddesses called Dakinis had actually stolen away the physical relics, saying that, uh, that his human disciples were not worthy of those as objects. And of course, this you know, caused them to be greatly distraught. I mean, this was, uh, caused great commotion, and they pleaded with the goddesses to, uh, to uh, retain some portion of the physical relics, and that was denied to them. And it's a very emotional scene, it's a very powerful scene, but it's also kind of an unusual scene for a Buddhist story like this, where relics are so important. So it got me thinking about what, what uh, the followers of Milarepa in his tradition were left with. And they were really left with the stories, with the narratives associated with Milarepa's life. And in a sense, it's that point that kind of sparked um, the the entire enterprise of the book, which is trying to understand how this moment of uh, uh, of emptiness, right, where the, where the disciples are left with nothing, how they come to not only create a sense of embodiment of this figure in the narrative tradition, but actually bring it to life to animate it in the way that relics are often animated um, in religious traditions. Now, can you tell us a little bit about Song Young Haruka, the madman of your title, who produced the canonical or the most authoritative version of this? How does his account differ from earlier accounts? Why did it become so important? Sure. So maybe a few words about uh, the, the kind of background of the biographical tradition. So Milarepa died in the uh, early 12th century. And we have some records that uh, were probably written down shortly after his death by close disciples. This is what I call the early kind of skeletal versions. He's sort of sketchy, almost like their notes hastily written down about uh, what their teacher had done. There are also some more extensive versions uh, of his life, uh, but they lack a real sense of kind of narrativity. There's no sense of storytelling or of real kind of literary craft involved. There's a, myri- uh, a middle period that begins uh, several hundred years after Milarepa died where we find these encyclopedic collections, what I call biographical comp- com- compendia, which in a sense are like clearinghouses for every bit of kind of uh, uh, storytelling that was known to their compilers and, and editors. And although those texts are largely uh, anonymous, we know some of the people who were associated with their creation. They're largely anonymous. Um, they're really extensive. And in some ways, they're more extensive than the final canonical version. But then we get to the 15th century, 
And this uh, really intriguing figure who referred to himself as a religious madman, Songyun Haruka, which means uh, the the madman of Western Tibet. Haruka, which was translated into Tibetan as the blood drinker, he who drinks blood. And the image here harkens back to uh, the late Indian tantric figure of these antinomian and transgressive uh, figures known as great adepts or siddhas. And these were uh, Buddhist practitioners. Well, they were, were also uh, uh, associated with other religious traditions, but especially Buddhism, um, where they lived on the margins of societies. They generally, well, they often eschewed uh, religious communities, lived uh, in small groups on the margins of society. And their practice of Buddhist Tantra was often marked by uh, acts of transgression where traditional Brahmanical religious, uh, religion would prescribe, would, uh, uh, would prescribe uh, you know, taking alcohol and things like that. Uh, these figures intentionally drank liquor. They associated with low-caste women, uh, often with prostitutes and things like that. And their acts of transgression were believed to uh, be signs of their, uh, uh, of their sort of standing above somehow, of their transcending traditional ideas of purity and impurity, of you know, what was correct and what was incorrect religious behavior, that their state of realization somehow transcended those dichotomies. And so in the 15th century in Tibet, we find uh, a movement that led to the self-recognition of these kinds of religious madmen who really modeled themselves after those late Indian tantric figures. The, the Siddhas. In some ways, they were reading and interpreting the esoteric Buddhist texts, the tantras, literally, and so they were carrying out those acts of transgression. And they were leveraging that as a means of, you know, attaining a kind of powerful status uh, within their cultural contexts. So, Tsongyin Haruka himself uh, was born in the mid 15th century. Um, he trained at an early age as a monk, but he quickly uh, gave up the monk's life in favor of the life of a wandering ascetic, much like Milarepa. Uh, he spent many years in solitary meditation in the borderland, kind of wild areas of the borderland between Tibet and northeast India in the jungles. And by one account, he emerged from those jungles wearing nothing but a loincloth and had uh, the fingers and toes of corpses wound around his dreadlocks. He wore garlands of human entrails and was eating the you know, rotten brains of corpses and things like that. And of course, all of the villagers were shocked, but they saw, I mean, here was someone who uh, they, they believed uh, had some real kind of religious power. Um, so among his many activities, uh, he embarked on a number of great literary projects to reinvent his own, or to, yeah, to, to, to reinvent, to remarket his own religious uh, institution. He was a follower of Milarepa, but in some ways recast the, the, the figure of Milarepa to emphasize uh, the path of the solitary mendicant, of the yogin. Uh, this was a time in Tibet when uh, Buddhism was highly institutionalized. It was a period of, in, in which these mass monasteries were, uh, were coming together, so uh, you had monasteries with thousands and thousands of monks. Oftentimes, they were centered around the charismatic figure of a recognized reincarnation. In Tibetan, they're called tulku. 
And in some respects, Tsongyin Haruka saw that as a, uh, uh, as a um, kind of mistaken practice, in a way, that was leading Buddhist practice astray. And he wanted to, in a sense, return his religious tradition back to its roots, which he saw embedded in the figure, uh, um, illustrated in the figure of the uh, solitary meditator, like Milarepa. And so he crafted this wonderful story that presents Milarepa as a founding figure, the, you know, the, the lord of all yogins. Could you tell us a little bit about how his narrative works? Because he, he made some significant changes in the way he presented the story, um, but he also uh, highlights this idea of the songs, which uh, perhaps th that kind of genre is not familiar to many. So uh, what, are, what are the songs? How do those work? How does uh, Haruka reimagine the narrative in his, in his own retelling? Well, Tsongyin and Haruka uh, made a number of really important literary moves. So one of the first things he did was separate two parts of this massive literary collection. Uh, the first part is the biography proper that tells the story of Milarepa's birth and early life, his, uh, com his committing you know, these great negative acts of mass murder, his repentance and training under a traditional Buddhist master and uh, his practice of meditation, and his eventual realization, and then death. So that's the, that's the arc of his life story proper. But then uh, in the early collections, there's a middle section which encompasses his entire teaching career, which you know, was many hundreds of pages, dozens and dozens of chapters, more than 60 chapters, each chapter containing kind of narrative cycles in which he would meet uh, human disciples, or he would confront demons who would uh, beset him in his meditation places and would teach them, uh, usually in verse and spontaneous forms of spontaneous song. And if you were to try to read from beginning to end that entire kind of collection of narratives, it would become, you know, really cumbersome. And so one of the things that Song Yun Haruka did was to separate them into two, uh, two separate texts. So you had a narrative proper, the life of Milarepa, that could be read from beginning to end um, in almost like a kind of novelistic fashion. And then you had a collection of Milarepa's poetry, his teachings in verse, in its traditional title. It's referred to as the 100,000 songs of Milarepa, although 100,000 is just the Tibetan word for meaning all. Right? So it really is a, a, the, the, the collected poetry of Milarepa. So both of those texts... Um, were produced kind of simultaneously, but in parallel. Uh, so that was one of the main innovations. The other, one of the other main innovations, well, we should say that Sonia Haruka w was, a, was really a, a, a literary craftsman. Uh, he was a great literateur. He had a great sense of style. He had a, a, a true sense of plotting and pacing and characterization that had been totally absent from previous versions of Milarepa's life story. Um, and so, in a sense, he created a more beautiful, a more aesthetically pleasing, and a more engaging kind of narrative, especially in the life of Milarepa. Uh, but you could say that one of the most prominent and crucial changes Tsongyin Haruka made to the narrative is that he changed what had traditionally been a third-person narrative, which would say things like, Milarepa was born, then uh, he committed these kind of acts of, uh, uh, of black magic and murder. He then went to, uh, you know, uh, he went on to repent 
and to study uh, under a traditional Buddhist master and so on. Um, he changed that to a first-person account. Now, of course, we can think about so that the story itself is presented as an autobiography. And the core of the story itself is narrated by, by Milarepa. And this actually uh, mirrors some important versions of the Buddha's own life story, from, especially from the later Mahayana texts like the Lalitavistara, where the Buddha is enjoined by his disciples to tell his story. So he follows that model. And this, in, in, in one sense, creates you know, a more kind of in, engaging narrative, as if it's being told by uh, the subject himself. But there was something deeper going on here, and this is uh, one of the, the um, kind of more important pieces, especially at the end of the book. It's what kind of led me uh, to the story in the first place, is to understand how that literary maneuver, how that kind of discursive tactic of changing from third person to first person voice serves to uh, create a kind of authoritative voice on both the part of the subject and also on part of the, the author um, to create a new canonical version of Milarepa's life. And it really is a fascinating story. Perhaps we should say here that you have done a, a beautiful translation of Haruka's version that is with Penguin Classics that people should also get. One of the key interjections I think it, it seems like you're making into the literature on Milarepa is this idea of, of what you call life writing, and what, from my reading, seem to be kind of the attempts to find the historical Milarepa. And you really make this transition to, let's think about the literary qualities of this corpus. How does thinking about the production, dissemination, reception, intertextual relationships, etc., et help us understand Milarepa better? Does the historical Milarepa really even in matter in this case? Yeah, well, I really start the, the book by making the claim that the search for the historical Milarepa has been a desideratum for you know, many scholars who've been interested uh, in this narrative tradition, but is one that I think may lead us astray. I think it's far more interesting to think about uh, the collection of narratives and the kind of literary corpus um, on its own terms to try and understand it as a form of literature and how this literary tradition went on to you know, manifest as Tibet's most famous book as one of its most frequently reprinted and circulated uh, narrative stories. Um, so I think uh, the investigation shows us, well, one, that uh, you know, the Tibetan and Himalayan world actually produced a literature that I think can stand on par with other kinds of great examples of world literature. Um, it's not something which is, should be, you know, sort of bracketed off um, or marginalized in any way. I think the, the story that Tsongyin Haruka crafted um, is every bit as great and important an example of world literature um, as others that are published in the Penguin Classic series, for example. Um, I was inspired uh, uh, in thinking about how to go about studying the tradition um, by Patrick Geary's uh, work on, uh, on hagiography, where he enjoins us to think not only about individual texts, but on entire canonical collections of literature. And so what I tried to do was to think about the most famous version of Milarepa's life, the canonical version that the madman wrote, 
um, in the context of the entire literary output associated with Milarepa. And it's only when seeing it in that context that you can begin to see the kind of intertextual connections um, between them. You can understand the kind of discursive and literary maneuvers that Sonia Haruka as an author is making to try and authorize his version um, and that affect the reading of his version as authoritative. Um, so in that sense, it allows us to understand why his version became the standard version or the canonical version. Um, I think it allows us to see uh, the kinds of effects that uh, literature and that Sonia Haruka's creation, uh, The Life of Milarepa, had beyond the literary world. So on, uh, on the formation of pilgrimage, on artwork, and, and things like that. Um, and finally, I think it illustrates... Uh, a couple of things about the state of our study of Buddhist literature and Tibetan and Himalayan literature in particular, one that we actually know very little about the entire corpus of Tibetan writing. Uh, there's a very small percentage that has been studied or translated. Uh, um, it also, I think, gives some guidance on how to go about studying those literary traditions. Um, I'm thinking here of the, one of the great forefathers of Tibetan studies, Eugene Smith, um, who encouraged us uh, not only to read widely, but also to read deeply. So to look for all possible texts within a canonical collection and to read across that canonical collection, but also to read individual texts deeply, looking for uh, interconnections between them. Finally, how do you imagine that others in the study of religion might rethink the recording and transmitting of, of life writing or how the structures and functions of a literary corpus affect the reading of a tradition after thinking about your, your research? Right. Well, I mean, here, one of, the, one of the things I'm doing is trying to understand uh, uh, Tibet's most famous uh, account of liberation, this most famous uh, liberation tale. Um, and the means by which it became authorized, and the means uh, by which its author uh, came to imbue its subject with that kind of authority. So I think it enjoins us to look carefully uh, not only at the text itself as a narrative, but at the relationships between authors and texts. And likewise, between texts and reading communities, although in the Tibetan case, uh, we, don't, we generally don't have good records um, on the uh, circulation and dissemination of texts like the life of Milarepa. But we do, for example, know um, that in almost every biographical account of great teachers in Tibet uh, will have, uh, you know, like a section in which they're in their retreat and reading the life of Milarepa and, you know, are moved to tears by the kind of perseverance that he displayed. And so we get a sense for at least tropes of reception, even if they're not historical nodes of reception, we get tropes of reception. So I think it, uh, it shows how we can be attentive to those kinds of connections, not only in the text itself, but in its relationships to reading communities. Uh, well, Andy, thanks very much. Congratulations on a wonderful book. Congratulations on the award, and it is well-deserved. Thanks so much, Christian. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you.